Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, especially those disconnected from Christ. And we hope you are encouraged by today's message. How's everybody doing today? Everybody doing good? Hey, happy Father's Day. It's already been said a couple of times, but happy Father's Day to all the fathers. I I heard earlier this morning that we thank you fathers for teaching us how to mow the grass so that you wouldn't have to anymore. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I also heard that in the year 2000, that the day with the highest number of greeting cards mailed was Mother's Day, and the day with the highest number of collect calls was Father's Day. So we paid our own money to tell our moms how much we love them, but we made our dads pay to hear how much we love them, I guess. But uh, hey, happy Father's Day. We're glad that you are here. You know, when I was in middle school, uh, I had a project that was assigned to me one year, and and I later found out it was kind of universal. Evidently, a lot of middle school students or maybe even late grade school students had to do this project. I didn't know it. I just thought it was something that my class did. But we had to make a family tree. Anybody else have to do that for like a school project? You have to kind of make a family tree? Some of you, seven people. That's awesome. So the rest of us don't know where we came from. Um, So we had to do a family tree when I was in middle school. And so I was like, okay, this will be fun. Uh, So I went home and I asked my parents, you know, you know, what are your birth dates and what are your real first names? Because, you know, to me, they were just mom and dad. And then, hey, what were your parents' birth dates and your parents' first names? And, you know, then I called my grandparents. I was like, what were your parents' first names and birth dates? And so I started getting, you know, several layers of the family tree up, several branches there. And so that was really fun to kind of get that information. Um, I don't know that I retained much of that information beyond just kind of who my grandparents were. You know, I was the oldest grandchild or am the oldest grandchild on both sides of of my immediate family. And so I got to name the grandparents. Did anybody else have that privilege in their life? Like I got to name them. So the best name I could come up with when I was like two or three and started referring to them was Meemaw and Peepaw. So on both sides of our family, both grandmothers are Meemaws and both grandfathers are Peepaws. And so I don't know what you call grandparents or great grandparents or anybody that has significance in your life, but man, we make up a lot of stuff. And so sometimes when we're thinking back, we don't always actually know what their real first names are. So like even yesterday and earlier this week, I was calling some extended family members to try to figure out, because I knew kind of what I was talking about today, like what was my great-grandmother's real first name? Because we just, you know, we just called her grandma or we just called her nanny. Oh, her real first name was nanny. Okay, I didn't know that. I thought we just called her nanny. But here's what you need to know. I stand here today on this stage as the son of Bill and Kathy, right? I'm also standing here as the grandson of YZ and Judy, and yes, his real first name is YZ, it's not initials and it doesn't stand for anything, and just as an aside, he has three brothers, OB, LD, and RJ. So I stand here as the grandson of YZ and Judy and Paul and Shirley. I also stand here as the great-grandson of Mylon and Kathleen and Paul and Nanny and Henry and Hattie and Stanley and Georgia. Now, those names don't mean anything to you, but they mean a lot to me. Just like if you were to stand and you were to tell me who your parents' names are and what your grandparents' names are, your aunts and uncles or your great-grandparents, they wouldn't mean anything to me. They're just names, but to you, they would mean something because that's what family trees do. They, they tell your story even if they don't tell my story because those people, even some of them that never met me, They died before I was born, or even some that didn't meet my children. They lived lives that helped to create the life that I am living now. 
And I don't know how you view life. Maybe you just assume that the day you were born, that's kind of when you started. But I'm of the opinion that your life started long before that, that your story actually originated long before you were ever a twinkle in your mother's eye or your father's eye, when there were people, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, aunts, uncles, mothers and fathers of the faith even, who were praying prayers for you and helping to forge the story that you are living out. I'll give you a great example. So I mentioned one man's name just a few minutes ago. His name was Henry. Henry Ernest Isaac. My dad bears that same middle name. He's William Ernest Isaacs. And so Henry Isaacs was a pastor and a church planter. About 60, 70 years ago, he was traveling around the United States, really on the eastern coast and even up into Michigan a little bit, and he was planting new churches in communities where churches did not exist, and he was pastoring those people, and he was releasing those people into ministry, and then he was going to new communities, and he was planting new churches. And the story that I was told that I actually wrote a story about when I was in school, the story that I was told one time was when he showed up to this town in Michigan, And he was going to plant or start a brand new church. And so there weren't a lot of churches in that area. And so he came in and he started winning people to the Lord and leading them to salvation. And he was able to purchase a tent. And they set up a tent uh, on a field there that was across the street from some businesses. And so he set that tent up and they were going to start holding church meetings there underneath the tent. And so they did that. And they started holding prayer meetings. And one day the sheriff showed up during the middle of the day. And Henry Ernest Isaacs, my great-grandfather, was there underneath the tent praying for the prayer meeting that would take place later that night. I don't know how many of you actually pray in advance of prayer meetings, but he was praying that God would meet with them in their prayer service later that night underneath that tent. And the sheriff showed up, introduced himself. My great-grandfather introduced himself, and he said, Sir, he said, I don't know what you're doing, but he said, I don't like it. He said, well, we're starting a new church here in this community. And he said, people are coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We're going to start this church, and we're going to grow this church and help win people to the Lord. And the sheriff said, we don't need a church like that in this community. My great-grandfather said, well, yes, sir, that's our plan. We're going to start this church. And the sheriff said, no, we don't need a church like that. And here's what I'm going to tell you to do. I want you to take the tent down, and I want you to stop meeting, and I want you to leave our town. My great-grandfather said, no, sir, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to start this church. And we're going to grow this church because it honors God. And that sheriff looked at my great-grandfather, according to the witnesses, the stories that I've been told, and he pointed his finger in his face. He said, sir, that's not going to happen over my dead body. And full of faith and vigor that I wish I had, my great-grandfather looked back at him and said, that can be arranged. (laughs) That same man, Henry Ernest Isaacs, he prayed for years and years after he came to know Jesus Christ that his children And his great-grandchildren and even his great-great-grandchildren would have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that they would become pastors and preachers and teachers of God's Word. Well, you've never met Henry Ernest Isaacs. But every single time that I stand on this stage or in any other setting like this where I get to declare the truths of God, I am standing on the shoulders of Henry Ernest Isaacs and his son and pastor YZ Isaacs, my grandfather, and his son and pastor, Bill Isaacs, my father, and I stand here on those shoulders. You never met him, but I am the answer to prayers that he prayed decades and decades and decades ago. My life started long before I ever actually arrived here on the earth. And so I want us today to celebrate fatherhood. 
I'm using my grandfather's Bible today. I used my, gra- my grandmother's Bible last week, but I want us to celebrate Father's Day today. You know, Father's Day is sometimes a little different than Mother's Day. My goal today is not to make you feel bad, but I want us to talk about this role of fatherhood. But in doing so, I want us to continue in the series that we started several weeks ago on the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to flip with me to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible but you have a device, you can go to a Bible app or just a Bible website and follow along. Feel free to do that. Most of the scriptures, not all, but most of them will be up on the screen today so that you can follow along. Acts is a series we've been in for a couple weeks. Pastor Trevor started the series two weeks ago looking at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 where he talked about waiting on the promises of God and he talked about the supernatural power of God poured out on God's people. And last week I talked about out of Acts chapter 6 this tension of a growing church, that the church was growing and Hundreds of people, even thousands of people were being added to the church. And as they were, some of the needs of the church, were, of the people were not being met. And so more people needed to be involved in ministry to meet the needs of the growing church. And if you call this place home, I'd love for you, if you weren't here last week, to go back and listen to that podcast just to kind of get a sense of what's happening here at Canton Church. And so today I want us to go to Acts chapter 7. We actually meet the main character of Acts chapter 7 in the previous chapter of Acts chapter 6. It's a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen was one of the guys that in Acts chapter 6, as the ministry team was expanding, he was one of the guys appointed to do ministry with the early apostles to meet the needs of the community and the growing church. And so not the government, but the religious leaders started hearing what Stephen was proclaiming and preaching, and so they arrested him. I use it in air quotes because, again, it wasn't the government, but it was the religious leaders. They arrested him, and they were now challenging the things that he was proclaiming and teaching that Jesus was the Son of God and that when he was crucified, he was crucified for the salvation of all of mankind. That was different than the religious leaders believed because they believed in the God Jehovah that, you know, through the law, and, and they just did not believe that Jesus was who Jesus had claimed to be in these early apostles. And so they said that he was blaspheming God, God the Father. And so they arrest him, and then he has to give account. And so the high priest in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, he has to give an account for the things that he's saying. The high priest says, are these things that you are saying, are they true? And over the next 53 verses, and I'm not going to read 53 verses. Some of you just broke out in the cold sweats. I'm not reading 53 verses this morning. But over the next 53 verses, he gives a summary of the story of God. And really what he does is he helps you to see and helps those people to see his family tree, his family tree of faith. I'm going to read a few verses. I'll tell some of the story. I'll read a few verses. I'll tell some of the story. But we'll try to summarize what Stephen shared in Acts chapter 7 as he was summarizing all of those Old Testament stories and patriarchs leading all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So in response to the high priest, this is what Stephen says beginning in verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Skip to verse 8. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, just picking up the story, Stephen's not talking anymore, I am. But pretty much what Stephen says then is those 12 patriarchs, those were the 12 sons of Jacob who would later become Israel. So these are the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 boys 
got mad at one of their brothers, a guy by the name of Joseph who had a dream and who was the favored of his father, and they sold Joseph into slavery. And eventually Joseph finds his way into the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's a rich guy, and he, through the faithfulness of Joseph and through the sovereignty of God, he eventually is elevated to be the second most powerful man in all of Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him. He doesn't, you know, take her advances, and so he says no. And so she lies to Potiphar. Potiphar puts him in prison through the faithfulness of Joseph and the sovereignty of God. Joseph is elevated to be the second most powerful man in all of the prison. One day, two guys show up that used to work for Pharaoh. They've thrown into prison. They both have dreams. Joseph is able to interpret those dreams, tells one of them they're going to die, and one of them they're going to be restored back to the house of Pharaoh. Sure enough, that's exactly how it happened. And then later, Pharaoh has a dream as well. When Pharaoh has a dream, the guy that was restored remembers there's a guy in the jail that knows how to interpret dreams. And so they call Joseph. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and says, here's the deal. You had a dream. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. You need to store during the plenty so that you have things during the famine. Pharaoh says, that's great. I need a guy to run that. You're the guy. You're now the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. No one is more powerful than you except me. So Joseph takes over. During the seven years of plenty, he accumulates all the extra food and all the extra supplies. He stores them up so that during the seven years of famine, when people have need, they have to come to Pharaoh to get what they need. And it elevates Pharaoh and his leadership. And then by product, it elevates Joseph. So later, Joseph's father, not knowing that Joseph's over there in charge of storing up the supplies, he and his kids, he and his boys are hungry. And so what they do is they say, hey, we heard there's food in Egypt. Let's go over and get some food. So he sends some of his sons, not all of his sons, but some of his sons over to Egypt to get food. They show up. Joseph recognizes them. He sends them back to get the other brother. They don't want to do it, but they eventually do. He brings, they bring the other brother back. Joseph recognizes again what's happened. He reveals himself to his brothers and says, what you meant for, for evil, God has turned into good so that I could save you and all of our family and really all of the known world at that point. They bring his father and the rest of his family, 75 people in all, into Egypt. They bring them to Egypt to establish a place where they can live and do life, and Pharaoh allows it. But then Jacob dies. And then Joseph dies. And then Pharaoh dies. And the Bible tells us here in the words of Stephen and in other places in Scripture that there came a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph or the things that Joseph had done for the previous Pharaoh. All he knows is that these Hebrew people are having lots of babies. And there's going to be more Hebrew people than there are going to be Egyptian people. And eventually they're going to try to take over the Egyptian people. And so we've got to do something about it. And so what he decides to do is he decides to have all of the infant babies killed. Except one day when Moses' mom gets that decree, she decides she doesn't want to kill her son. And so she decides she's going to put him in a basket and put him in the river. And wouldn't you know it, that's the same river that Pharaoh's daughter takes her bath in. She goes down, she finds the basket, and in the basket was a baby. And so she decides that she's going to take this baby back to Pharaoh's house and raise this child as her own son. And so Moses lives for 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh, learning the incredible deeds and the incredible words of what it looks like to be in leadership among the Egyptians, foreshadowing that he would need later in life. And then one day he decides, this is my day to really be the savior of my people. And he goes out and an Egyptian is hurting one of his Hebrew brothers and he decides, I'll save him. And so he eventually kills the Egyptian and hides his body. He buries it in the sand. If you've ever dug in the sand, that's a really hard job. But he digs down in the sand and buries the Egyptian body and he doesn't think anybody saw 
what he did. The next day he comes out and two Hebrew guys are fighting with one another. And he tries to stop them and they say to him, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday. And in response to that, this is what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Look at this in verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. So God calls Moses to go and set his people free from the bondage and captivity of Egypt. He goes and he speaks to Pharaoh. He learned how to do that years before when God in his sovereignty placed him in the palace. They eventually, through the sovereignty of God, are set free. They leave. God rolls back the waters of the sea. They march into the wilderness on dry land. God supernaturally provides for them food and everything that they would have need of as they were out in the desert. God is speaking to Moses and doing amazing things through Moses to make sure that his people have everything that they need, but the people obey and then they disobey and they obey and then they disobey and they can't figure out how to trust the supernatural God that's doing supernatural things on a regular Thursday when things don't seem so supernatural. Can we relate at all? Okay, just me. All right, so then one day Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. God is speaking to him and Aaron, who's kind of the second in command for a little while, the people come to him and say, hey, will you build us a golden calf so we have something to worship? We have nothing to worship. And so Aaron does it. And because of their disobedience and because of them worshiping someone that was other than God, God says, okay, there's an entire generation of you, including Moses, eventually, who will not get to see the promised land. And so one day, Joshua takes command. Moses has died. And Scripture tells us in Joshua chapter 1, Moses, your leader, is dead. Now you are to arise and lead the people into the promises of God. Don't be afraid. I'm going with you. Don't be afraid. I'm going with you. Don't be afraid. I'm leading the way and going with you. And Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they conquer new lands, and they defeat their enemies, and they do these amazing things. And that's pretty much the story of the people of God in the promised land as they try to learn how to be obedient among this other pagan people, and they conquer new lands. And that's the story until we get to really King David, and he continues to conquer new lands and expand the territories And he says to God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a place where we can worship you and come together and celebrate all that you've done. And God says to David, you can't do that. You have too much blood on your hands. So your son Solomon will actually be the one to build the temple, which Solomon does. And then Stephen says to the people that he is testifying in front of in the court that day of these religious leaders, he said, and just as the people disobeyed and just as the people could not trust God on an everyday basis, you too have done the same thing and it's on your heads and it's on your hands that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. You want to make a bunch of religious people mad? Tell them that they're doing it wrong. That's what Stephen did. And they eventually stone him to death. There's a guy by the name of Saul, later Paul, who's overseeing this crucifixion by stoning. We're going to talk about him next week. You need to be here for that. And so now we have this story of Stephen. 53 verses in Acts chapter 7 where he sums up the entire history of Israel. 53 verses. But in 53 verses, he says, Father, Son, Offspring, Heritage, legacy, inheritance, 38 times in 53 verses. He cannot tell the story of the faithfulness of God without referencing the family of God. 
53 verses, 38 references to family and the stories of family. He needs us to understand what he needed those people to understand, that you weren't just born the day you were born. There was a story that was taking place long before you ever got here, and if you don't know it or you don't like where you came from, you also understand that people prayed and people lived and people worked for the life that you are now living. Somebody somewhere lived a life that resulted in your life. And maybe it's not the story of faith. Maybe it's not a lineage and a heritage of Christianity or following after God. But you and I have to understand that even if we were not influenced by those who were Christ followers before us, we have the opportunity to influence those who will come after us in the ways that we follow Christ. Here's an amazing truth on this incredible Father's Day. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. God could have chosen any imagery that he wanted to, to reveal himself to us. And yet he chose the image of father. God could have shown us himself in any picture. And yet he chose to be Abba, father. God, our father. And for some of us, that's a really easy connection because we have a great relationship with our earthly father. And for others of us, there's brokenness. For others of us, there are missing relationships and we're not really sure how that all plays into what we know about God. You know, several years ago, the Swiss did this incredible study. They've uh, revised the study several times and kind of followed up with people. And here's what they, they were looking for. They were looking at the role of mothers and fathers in the faith of their children. And here's what they discovered, that when both mom and dad are regular church attenders, 33% of their children will end up being regular church attenders, and 41% will end up attending semi-regularly. But if the father is an irregular church attender, but mother is a regular church attender, only 3% of the children will attend church regularly, while another 59% of the children will be irregulars and 38% will be completely lost. If the father doesn't practice religion or faith in any way and never attends church, but the mother is faithful and devout, only 2% of the children will worship regularly and 37% will attend irregularly. But look at this. When the father is a regular attender of church and the father practices his faith openly in front of his children, even if the mother does not practice at all, 38% of the children will regularly attend church and 44% will be irregular attenders. The the numbers, when you add them all together, are staggering to understand that if the father is involved in the faith of his children, they will retain the faith into their own adulthood. It's incredible when you see that. And I realize when you hear that, you may say, yeah, I can relate to that. That's how my dad was very involved in the faith, and now I'm very involved in faith. Or maybe my dad kind of lived faith in the fringes, and I too, if I'm being honest, I live faith in the fringes. Or maybe my dad wasn't involved at all, and I'm not really sure how faith plays in my life at all. I realize too, some of you are sitting in this room, and you go, listen, I'm, I'm mom and dad. There is no dad in our home. And when you give me stats like that, it scares me to death. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but understand that the role that God plays The role of heavenly father doesn't leave you on your own to play both roles. So look at what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, verse 32. We've already read it. He said, I am the God of your fathers, 
the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He's quoting Old Testament passages. But when I read this this week in preparation of today, it jumped out to me like never before. I am the God of your fathers. I wonder who your children will say is the God of their father. Who will my children say is the God of their father? If your children are trying to understand a heavenly father and their only example of fatherhood is you, what will they know about God? What will they know about God? If it just completely depended on you, would they think that God is provider and God is loving, that God is gracious and compassionate and forgiving? Or would they only know God's justice and his wrath and his anger, his judgment? Now, all of those things go together because all of those are parts of God. God judges and he disciplines. And scripture tells us that if he doesn't discipline us, he doesn't love us. So it's a part of who God is. But what would your children know about God if you were the only model for them? If you were the only example of who God was, what would they know about God? If all that your children understood about who God is and what God is, is what they saw in you, would they love him? Would they be scared of him? Would they approach him confidently? Or would they run away from him? If all they knew about God is what they saw in you. Fathers, if you're a father in the room, I want to speak to you very specifically for just a minute before we bring it all back together for all of us. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you have a heritage of faith. Maybe you have strong family bonds. And so you recognize that you're standing on the shoulders of others and you are trying to set your children up to succeed and live lives of faithfulness and obedience to God. And I encourage you to continue that heritage that maybe you have received previous to now. The reason that you are trying to live right is not because it's just what you're supposed to do and it's the right thing to do. You're modeling for your kids what it looks like to live right and to follow God. The reason that you're called to stay faithful and pure in your marriage is not because it's just the right thing to do. You're actually helping to set the stage for them in a culture that says marriage is something that you can get into and get out of whenever you want to. And you're saying, no, 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 we're going to stay in this and we're going to stay faithful in this. When you go to your job and it's hard, but you don't cut any corners, what you're doing is you're modeling for your children what it means to actually be honest and to stand upright and to do what is right even when it is hard because that's what we're called to do. You are modeling for your children what it means to follow after Jesus. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you don't have a faith heritage and people that came before you that prayed prayers that you're the answer to, at least that you know about. Maybe you're like Nate. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. We talked in the lobby before this service. Maybe you're a first generation follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he told me. He said, man, I'm a first generation. He's like, maybe 50, 60 years from now, somebody's thankful for the prayers I'm praying. Well, here's what I watched during worship. Nate stood right up here and led us in worship, and his son Levi mimicked everything that he did. When Nate lifted his hand, Levi lifted his when Nate clapped, Levi clapped. You have the opportunity to rewrite the story of your family. You don't have to be a fifth generation anything. You can be a first generation and change the entire trajectory of your family for generations to come so that 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years from now, someone is thanking God that you were faithful today. 
Someone is thanking God that you were faithful today. And so here's the question. What if your children's level of obedience tomorrow depended on your obedient faith today? What if your children's level of obedience tomorrow depended on your obedient faith today? And you might say today, Jeremy, that's, that's great, man. I wish I had a father like that. That's just not my story, man. My dad's gone. He's been gone a long time. Or maybe he's around. Man, he's good for nothing. He hurt us. He lied to us. He stole from us. He abused us. Somewhere in between. I got permission to share this story yesterday. That's always better than when I tell stories without permission. Sitting on the front row is my lovely wife, who's never met her real father. We found the paperwork a few years ago of the separation notice between him and Corey's mom, and it's dated almost nine months to the day before Corey was born. He found out, and he took off. We were driving not too long ago through the city that he used to live in. We don't know where he lives now and if he's living. Some of the family thinks that maybe he's passed away. There's different stories they've heard and relationships they still have. But she looked at me as we drove through that town and she said, isn't it crazy to think that maybe my dad lives somewhere right around here? Maybe you can relate to that story. Or maybe you can't relate to that, but you understand what it's like not to have a legacy of faith and not to have someone who set you up to succeed in life or in faith. Maybe you're the mom in the room that says, I'm playing both mom and dad. Listen to this truth about God from Psalm 68, verse 5. God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God is holy in his dwelling place. God's not left you alone to do a job that somebody else isn't playing in your life and the life of your kids. And so here's what I would say to you, just like happened in Corey's life. Look around you to the people that may be in your life that could model for you what it looks like to be a godly husband or a godly father. What godly marriages look like. This last week, there was somebody that played a, a key role in Corey's life, and, and she posted on their timeline on Facebook, it was their anniversary, and she said, thank you so much for what you modeled for me as a young girl, of what life and ministry and marriage could actually look like. You'll never know how much it meant. Who's watching you? Maybe you say, well, I'm not a dad, I'm not a mom, I don't know that I ever will be, but the question is the same. Who's watching you? What if someone in your life is looking to find God and the only example that they have is you? What if they're looking to see what it looks like to stay married when it gets hard and the only model they have is you? What if they're looking for some man that would just be a man and just do what's right and not bail out when it gets hard? And what if the only example they can find is you? What if they're looking to a woman to say, you know, I'll, this is what it means to be a godly woman in this day and age, in this culture, in this time. And what if the only example they can find is you? The reason that God put you where he put you is so that you could reflect the love of God to those who are in need of the love of God. So what if your children or someone else's children that they've abandoned 
What if their level of obedience tomorrow depended on your obedient faith today? What if God just needs you to chase after him with all of your heart? And when you make a mistake, you just authentically say, listen, I'm not perfect, but I'm just continuing to pursue God one step at a time, the best that I know how. Because here's what I believe. Stephen sets it up in Acts chapter 7 so well. It's almost impossible to tell someone's story of faith without including some family story as well. Doesn't have to be blood. But what if you are the answer to somebody's prayer just by the way that you follow after Jesus Christ? Let's pray. God, I thank you today for all the fathers in the room. I thank you, Lord, that you have given them, given me the incredible responsibility to invest in, to love the next generation in the way that only fathers can. I thank you for the mothers in the room. I thank you for the incredible role that you allow mothers to play in the development, the care and nurturing of their children. God, I thank you for those, whether it be men or women, who are having to play both roles in the lives of their kids. I pray for supernatural strength for them. I pray for those today that maybe aren't parents yet, but desire to be, and maybe it just hasn't happened yet, God, that you would give them patience, but help them to understand their responsibility presently with the other people in their lives, other children, other parts of the next generation. And God, I pray for every person in this place, from the youngest to the oldest, that we would recognize our responsibility to reflect the love of God to those who are coming after us, to those that are walking beside us. God, I pray today that you would help every single one of us to be the kind of people to reflect your love in such a way that people don't have any trouble seeing you as Heavenly Father. But if they know us, they watch the way we treat our father. They watch the way we treat our children. They watch the way we treat our spouse. They watch the way we treat our friends, that they would see a heavenly father who's forgiving and loving, gracious and compassionate. He's just. He's holy. He's righteous. But he loves them. God, help people to see your love by the way that we love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.